0: Find our place for the message by turning to Luke chapter six. We are working through the gospel according to Luke, verse by verse. And now we come to Luke 6, which The passage today we, we introduced in a, in a way last week because the verses, verses 13 through 19, that we focused on last week, lead into what Jesus is going to do in the remainder of the chapter. In verses 20 through 49 of Luke chapter 6, Jesus is going to preach a message that we'll study under the terminology of God's kingdom manifesto. Some nearly 250 years ago now, One of the most important events that affects the life of everyone here, as well as everyone who has lived and lives in the United States, transpired on July 4th, 1776. That day, Congress ratified the Declaration of Independence two days after voting to declare independence, from England. The Declaration of Independence contains three sections. There's a preamble which was an introduction designed to convince Americans that the cause was worth laying for. And then there was a list of grievances against King George the 3rd of England. In that list of grievances, you find 27 grievances that Congress leveled against uh, a man that they referred to as a despot. He was a tyrant over the American colonies. And then the third section was that resolution of independence. A statement declaring the colonies' complete disconnection from England and establishment as a separate and independent nation. The actions of so many during that period provided for the nation that we are today. Their declaration claimed to the world and set in motion a series of events that led to the establishment of this Nation, but friends, I want you to understand today that long before the Declaration of Independence of America, a declaration was proclaimed that should impact our lives even more as believers in Jesus christ luke six twenty to forty nine is Luke's version of what Matthew calls the Sermon on the Mount. I personally believe that Luke and Matthew are not recording the same message. By that I mean, as Jesus went about and preached, the New Testament tells us that he preached the gospel of the kingdom. When Jesus went about preaching repentance... The kingdom of heaven is at hand. what he was doing was presenting and declaring God's kingdom to the people. And this was a message that he preached regularly. It it wasn't always brand new original content. And so in Matthew chapter 5, we read earlier in the service that Jesus went up into a mountain. When he was there, he sat and he preached... In Luke chapter 6, Jesus descends from the mount to a plain. It's two separate occasions. Two maybe not completely different groups of people. There may have been people at the event recorded in Luke 6 who were also at the event recorded in Matthew 5. But it's the same message even though it's preached at two different times, two different places. And what we have here is a message of God's kingdom. It contains a variety of blessings, woes, imperatives, declarations, and illustrations. It all works together for one main purpose, to represent God's kingdom manifesto. What do I mean by that? As Jesus preaches this message, he preaches... The plan and agenda for the kingdom. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, or here the Sermon on the Plain, represents the implications of the rule of Jesus in our lives. It begins with this pronouncement of blessings and woes. So we're going to break it down over the course of three weeks We'll start here in Luke 6 with verses 20 through 26, the opening of God's kingdom manifesto. Look at verse 20. And he, Jesus, lifted up his eyes on the disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets." But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you, when all men shall speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. Let's begin by examining... Who Jesus directed this message to. As Jesus was preaching this message to a multitude, whom did he make eye contact with? The Bible tells us there in Luke 6 he lifted up his eyes on what? His disciples. He made eye contact with his disciples. He directed the thoughts of the message to them. Certainly the message has applications and implications for anyone who heard it. But it primarily contains applications and implications for those who are disciples of Jesus. Who are we talking about? We're talking about those who are committed followers of Jesus. One pastor and theologian put it this way. He directed the thoughts of this sermon with a twofold function in mind to encourage faithfulness among Jesus' disciples and to challenge non disciples to follow him. And so, this morning, as we begin, answer this question for yourself Which category do you fall into? Are you we're talking about a message Jesus preached to committed followers of Jesus Christ you understand don't you that to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ you have to be a believer in Christ do you know and believe today that Jesus is the virgin born son of God Do you know and believe today that Jesus is the Savior, the perfect Lamb of God sent from the Father above, who lived a perfect life, who died the death that you deserve, taking on and in himself the sin of all humanity? He became sin for us who knew no sin. And he rose again on the third day, To bring justification and redemption to all who would believe in him. Do you believe that about Jesus? Are you a believer in Christ? Are you a believer who is not a committed follower of Jesus? Is it possible for that to be true? Certainly it is. You can be a mediocre believer. You can be a nominal believer believer. You can be what the Bible calls a carnal believer. Someone who believes in Jesus the way that I just described, but doesn't grow in the faith. Someone like Peter, when he speaks about those who do not add to their faith, and then he gives a list of characteristics, and he says that those who don't do that, they come to the place in their lives where they forget that they've been purged from their old sins and they're not committed followers of Jesus. I wonder today if in this auditorium or someone watching online would have to say, hey, I'm a believer, but but I'm not a committed follower. Are you a believer who is also a committed follower of Jesus? Which category do you fall into every person in the world falls into one of those three categories either you're a believer or you're not you're a believer who's not a committed follower or you're a believer who is a committed follower of Jesus whatever your connection to Jesus Christ the message that he preaches here has application and implication for you and he opens the message by declaring blessings and woes on groups of people dependent on their response to him before looking at the specific blessings and woes let's break down what these actually are he uses here the word blessed blessed are ye blessed are ye blessed are ye The word that is used here in the original Greek form means happy, fortunate, well off. When it first came into use among the Greeks, Greek classical writers limited the use of this word to outward prosperity, the idea of being healthy, wealthy, and wise. If you were blessed, you were that person, you had good health, you had wealth. You were wise in, in the world's way of thinking. A little later, in Greek usage, the, the Greek philosophers did incorporate a moral component to this word, but it still was attached simply to knowledge, and then if you're blessed, outward prosperity. In other words, in Greek philosophers' mind, to be virtuous, necessary. Their idea of knowledge Only a few could even have that So only a few could be virtuous Hence only a few Could be outwardly prosperous But as it did with so many Words Christianity Expanded The idea behind this word To be blessed In the simplest explanation is to experience the joy that comes from knowing, believing, pursuing, and serving God. It's a joy that comes not from the circumstances of life, but from the recognition of God above all, in all, and through all exactly the way God was described by the Apostle Paul when he preached in the heart of Greek uh, philosophy, when he preached on Mars Hill in Athens, he spoke of a God who is not distant, but is near to every one of us, who is above all, who is in all, and working through all. You see, when the believer who is a committed follower of Jesus, Christ has that recognition of God the circumstances of life cannot affect that inner joy because you and I know that even through the difficult hard circumstances of life God is near he's in control and he's working through it all for our good and his glory that's what it is to be blessed the word woe translates a Greek word As far as it's it's part of speech, it's actually an interjection. It, It was a word that represented an exclamation of grief or denunciation. And what Jesus is doing here is he's announcing the result of failing to live according to the agenda of God's kingdom. You see, you can be someone who's not a believer and And just naturally the natural outcome of that is you aren't going to live according to god's kingdom agenda you can be a believer in jesus christ but not a committed follower of christ and in that place you may not be living according to god's kingdom agenda Those who are committed followers of Jesus Christ give evidence to the reality that Jesus is Lord and he rules in their lives and they will be working toward living under the influence of and building God's kingdom. And as he pronounces those who are blessed and those who have woes pronounced over them, notice that they're set in contrast to each other. Verse 20 contrasts with verse 24. Verse 21a contrasts with verse 25a. Verse 21b contrasts with verse 25b. Verse 22 contrasts with verse 26. And then, right in the middle, Jesus provides a command and promise for those who experience what he speaks about in verse 22 specifically. But generally, it's for all those who live for the kingdom. And as we consider these four contrasts, we're going to attach a theme to them. And then the challenge for us is to reflect on how we need to respond to them today. You may have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. We're talking about God's kingdom, what what the Bible calls Jesus preaching the king the, the gospel of the kingdom. You need to understand today that God's kingdom is the only forever enduring kingdom. As I spoke briefly about our declaration of independence. As much as I am thankful for and pray, pray for our country, friends, the reality is the United States of America will not forever endure. It, it won't. The great kingdoms of the past uh, across this world have not forever endured. You may be living for your own personal kingdom. You might be seeking to build up a life that that you see as prosperous and successful, and in that way, you're working toward your own personal kingdom, but friend, even your own personal kingdom will one day fade away. His never will. And you can become part of God's kingdom through trusting Christ. If you've trusted Jesus to forgive and save you, This message represents his agenda for his kingdom. It shows us the kind of people he is transforming us to be. He identifies what we should look for, seek, and cooperate with him in building. So the the challenge for you is to pattern your life after what he shows us in this message are you living for the things he identifies are you seeking what he says we should be seeking are you cooperating with him to build his kingdom or even as a believer in this world are you living for another kingdom it's a challenge for us as we consider these four contrasts so let's see them in their themes number one I want you to see the contrast of dependency. Let's read them in their contrast. So, for this first one, the contrast of dependency, let's read verse 20, followed by verse 24. The Bible declares this in verse 20 And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then look at verse 24. But woe unto you that are rich, ye have received your consolation. So immediately we see this contrast, don't we? Poor and rich. But also immediately we are confronted with an analogy that we must reconcile. As Jesus identifies the poor and rich. What do you and I often think about when we think of those terms? poor and rich money wealth and the reality is we probably all have a different definition of what that means maybe for you maybe just you think of yourself as poor in wealth and there are others around you who are rich and have wealth but we might go to another place even within our own community and suddenly you would appear to be rich In comparison with somebody else so, so where is this line? Is that even what Jesus is identifying? Who does he describe? Rather than describing those who are poor and rich According to the world's standards of health and wealth Jesus describes a spiritual standard How can we know this? Let's let the Bible interpret the Bible. Let's let Jesus himself interpret his own words. Look, if you would, at Matthew chapter 5. Again, same message, preached at a different time and in a different place. But the same message. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 3. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor... Oh, there's an addition here, isn't there? Blessed are the poor, what? In spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The contrast represents the difference between someone who recognizes his or her complete insufficiency in exchange for Jesus' all-sufficiency. When Jesus speaks of being poor, he speaks of those who realize I am spiritually bankrupt. My sincerity, my zeal, my work, my resources are incapable of producing anything of spiritual value to myself or others. And when I recognize the truth of that, it drives me to depend on him that's why this is a contrast of dependency those who are poor use the the temporal analogy those who are poor who who don't have this world's wealth who don't have what they need to take care of themselves to to sustain life who can't just go out and get food and get clothing and get shelter those who are poor in that sense must depend on someone else Must depend on someone Who will come alongside and help to meet those needs But those who are rich They don't have anything like that They, they don't need Dependent on someone else to care for their needs They don't need that help in that way Spiritually speaking It's the same. Those who are poor recognize they are insufficient in and of themselves. And that they need what Jesus offers. After conversing with a wealthy man who came to him asking about the kingdom... Jesus spoke these words to that wealthy man, Mark 10:23 to25, and Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, "How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, "Children, how hard it is for them that what?" Trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Notice, it's not ultimately about being poor or rich that was the issue. It was, where is your trust? What are you depending on? In making that statement, Jesus indicated that that wealthy man who came to him... Was trusting his riches. That's what he was dependent on. And Jesus said, Those who are rich in this world have a challenge of depending on someone, even in a spiritual sense, because that's where they find their trust, their dependence. To be poor is to recognize you're spiritually bankrupt. There's nothing in you, nothing you possess, nothing you can give and nothing you can do to make you worthy of being God's child or add to him. Think about this. If you depend on yourself in any way, it sets you up to nothing better than what you have in this present moment. If you depend on yourself you are no better than what you have in this present moment the problem with that is someday that's all going to be stripped away you could lose everything you have you could lose all of your strength your health could could depart from you your wealth could be taken away stolen Or lost You could lose it all And if you're depending on yourself You're no better than what you have in that present moment And that's going to be a big problem When you stand before God Because friends you can't take anything with you So what does this mean In relation to you and God's kingdom It's interesting and purposeful That this appears first Because it causes us to reflect back again on what category you fall into related to Jesus Christ are you a believer are you depending on Jesus alone for salvation are you a believer who's not a committed follower if that's true then it's likely all also- You are not completely dependent on him for everything You're working to build your own kingdom You're dependent on what you have What you possess, your own resources Rather than dependent on him Or are you that disciple, that believing, committed follower of Jesus If we're to strive to be committed follower of Jesus It causes us to reflect on our dependency now Are you dependent on him for all things related to daily supply, strength, service? Are you abiding in him in humble recognition of your need for him? Are you looking to him for direction, wisdom, and help? Are you dependent on him? Spurgeon said it this way, not what I have. But what I have not is the first point of contact between my soul and God. He was talking about what it means to be poor in spirit. A recognition not of what I am, not of what I have to offer God, not not of how I can stand in and of myself, but to recognize that I am nothing and I need him completely. That's the contrast of this dependency. Notice number two, the contrast of desire. Verse 21, Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. And then look at verse 25, the first half of the verse. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. How many of you know what it is to feel hungry? Anybody right now say, yep, I'm there right now. I'm hungry. Pastor, could you get done? I want to go to lunch. We know what it is to feel hungry. Now, likely most of us never, if ever, get beyond those simple hunger pains you know what those are caused by? Those are actually movements in your stomach. It's your body telling you, I'm hungry, feed me, give me nutrients. But if you move past the point of hunger to where it becomes what they call excessive hunger, the symptoms of that progress dramatically. It includes physical symptoms that are severe as well as emotional and mental symptoms when when you experience excessive hunger. And all of these that are progressively worsening drive you to do something. What is it? Eat. When you're experiencing those symptoms, be it the minor, your tummy is rumbling, it's telling you, feed me. Whether you get to that point of excessive hunger, your body is literally being driven to eat, to get some food. We should already recognize that the characteristics described here are not physical so much as they are spiritual. And so when Jesus declares, blessed are you that hunger now, he's not talking about hunger pains when he talks about being full, he's not talking about you just finished a 7 course meal and you're stuffed beyond stuffing. That's not what he's talking about. When Jesus declares this, he, he's talking about something much deeper. In Matthew 5, 6, Matthew records it this way. Blessed are ye, are they which do hunger and thirst After righteousness, for they shall be filled. Jesus here is talking about a desire. Hunger represents need, appetite, desire. Usually when you're hungry, you are hungry for something specific. Have you ever said something like this? I'm hungry for, and then fill in the blank. When it reaches that point of excessive hunger, people will literally hunger for anything that they can get. But it represents a desire. It's a lack of something that someone then goes seeking after, wanting. And without meeting the desire, the symptoms progressively worsen. But in contrast, fullness represents satisfaction. No lack of anything, no need for anything. And it might be the goal, physically speaking, you might want to get to that point, but it's a poor spiritual level to be at. It means satisfaction with where we are, with what we've already done, the level we've reached. It identifies a sense of fulfillment here and now, as if we can attain here in this temporal world enough. Do you remember what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea? He was sick of them. Why? Because they said, we're rich, we're increased with goods, and we don't need anything. That's a poor spiritual place to be in life. In preaching a message, the Christian apologist and author C.S. Lewis once preached a message of glory. And in his introduction in the message where he spoke about what it is to, to really glory in Christ and what it is to bring glory to God, he said, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward... In the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. He he says, we often are just too weak in our desires. We are satisfied with finding fulfillment in the things that this world has to offer us rather than striving for what God offers us. And what he wants to bring to us. So what are you hungry for? What do you desire? Is pursuing God as important to you as eating today? How sad it is that we can be satisfied to eat our three meals and be full and think we have need of nothing. When God offers us a feast. And we don't even hunger for it. Are you just as motivated to pursue and obtain spiritual goods as you are to pursue and obtain the temporal things of this life? And I have to be transparent. I struggled with writing this mes- part of the message in particular because even more than I'd like to admit, I crave the things of this world more than I crave pursuing God. God, help us to hunger for are you hungry in that way? Or are you full? I'm good. I'm satisfied. I'm good with where I am. Note, notice number three. I know we're getting short, but let's, let's conclude. Notice the contrast of delight. Second half of verses 21 and 25. He says, Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. And then he says, What well, do you that laugh now? for ye shall mourn and weep. In reference to this portion of the passage, C.H. Spurgeon wrote, I do not believe in the faith which has not a tear in its eye when it looks to Jesus. Dry-eyed faith seems to me to be bastard faith, not born of the Spirit of God. Those are strong words. It seems to me, when Jesus contrasts those who weep now with those who laugh now, that two important ideas are at play. First, the idea of my response to sin is at play. Interestingly, a different Greek word translated mourn is used in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, blessed are those that mourn. Here it's weep. It's not the same Greek word translated differently. It's actually two different Greek words. But what's interesting is that the Greek word used in Matthew 5 and the one used here in Luke six twenty one appear together in two New Testament passages. They appear in the same phrase in the same verse. One is here in verse number 25 where he does the contrast where he says uh, blessed or er, er, woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. But then the other one is found in James chapter 4, verse 9. Listen to what he says there carefully. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Why? Why? Why would a New Testament penman command us to be afflicted, to mourn, to weep? Well, if you know the context of James chapter 4, you know that James is dealing with the issue of personal sin. He speaks to those who have wandered away, to those who have made a decision that is Wrong To those who have given into temptation and like the prodigal left his father, have walked away from God. Be it for a long season of time or just in a moment of time. And he said, in response to your personal, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Can I ask you today, how does sin affect you? How are you impacted by your personal sin? Now, let me be very clear here. We should weep and mourn over the sin of the culture around us. I I don't have to say it. It's no surprise to you that we're getting ready to embark on a month that is set aside to put sin on a pedestal. But friends, can I tell you today that even more than I would mourn and weep over the sin of my culture that would do that, I should be touched by my own sin. Can I ask you, how how does your own personal sin affect you? Does it grieve your heart? When you walk away from God, when you do something, say something, or have a thought that you dwell on that is wrong, that's wicked, that's against God, He deals with this idea of personal sin, but I want you to see not only that, the idea of waiting for the return of Jesus is at play. On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus spoke to his disciples, teaching them and encouraging them. And as he spoke about leaving them, he also promised them he would return. Here's what he said in John 16, 20 through 22. Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament but the world shall rejoice, ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman when she is in travail has sorrow because her hour is come, but as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice and your joy no And take it from you. Two applications jump from the text. First, they would weep over Jesus' crucifixion, but they would rejoice in his resurrection. Praise God today that we have a Savior who died for us, but we can rejoice that we don't serve a dead Savior. He's a risen Savior. But then also, they would weep when he would leave them, but rejoice over the promise that he would come back. Well, how does this apply to us? Paul writes in Romans 8 that all creation groans and travails in pain as those who are adopted into God's family by God's Spirit do. Why? Why would we groan and travail in pain if we've been adopted into the family of God? Because we're waiting for the totality of our salvation to be realized. You understand, don't you, that the totality of your salvation, you've not experienced yet. You're still living in a sinful world. You still have a sinful flesh. Paul says, sin still lives in your heart. But friends, there's coming a day when you're in heaven with him, your salvation will be totally realized, and all of that will be expelled from you. I'm looking forward to that day. So why weep and mourn if we look forward to it with anticipation? Because our present, our present, personally and corporately, is still infected with and influenced by sin. But you say, Pastor, you said this was a contrast of delight. Here's why. If you delight the Lord you will experience a holy grief over the present predicament that no prescription or pleasure of the world can solve. You can't go to the world and find a prescription for, you can't go to the world and find a pleasure that will deal with the reality that you and I are sinful creatures living in a sinful, broken world. And that brings a holy dissatisfaction a holy grief into our lives. And it is a grief that is experienced by those who delight in the Lord. And so don't see the action as something that is wrong because a holy dissatisfaction drives you to look for and build God's kingdom. You're delighting in him and what's to come. And then fourthly, would you notice the contrast of drive? It's the contrast presented in verses 22 and 26. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Verse 26, woe unto them woe oh, unto you excuse me when all men shall speak well of you for so did their prof- fathers to the false prophets now let's take a moment and think here just so you don't misunderstand jesus is not indicating that you should leave here today and make it your goal to make everybody hate you okay that's not it Don't leave church today and go out of your way to displease and offend everybody whose path you cross. Don't go to the restaurant today and demand the waitress tip you. Okay? Have you ever known someone like that? They just seemed like they tried to get everybody to hate them. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. So, what is he talking about then? Let me tell you in the words of Paul. From Galatians 1:10, he said this, "For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ? The main thought Paul presented was that the drive of his ministry was not pleasing others, but pleasing Christ. He, he was not driven by pleasing men. He didn't do what he did hoping that all men would think well of him and commend him for it. In fact, even as Paul was attacked by others, and we know that it's true from the testimony of his life, he gave glory to God in the reality that he was being reproached for the cause of Christ. God... I am being reproached because I am doing what I'm doing to please you. And friends, the same should be true of us. If you receive commendation, praise God. But if you are driven by being commended or praised by others, you've got a problem. Because at some point, you're going to be faced with a situation where pleasing, pleasing God go two different ways. And if your desire is to be praised by others, to please others, you're going to go that way just like the prophets of Israel did in olden times who, who said what they said just to, just to please people. They didn't really share the word of God. Your first thought and desire of heart should be pleasing God. And if in the process of that others commend you, fine. But if your motivation is men's commendation, you are on dangerous ground. So Jesus does not mean to go out of your way to get people to hate you, but set your heart on pleasing Jesus. And in some cases, that's just going to happen naturally. The gospel is offensive. Serving Jesus and putting him first in all things is offensive to some. He is a rock of stumbling, a stone of offense. And so it's a contrast of drive. Seek to please him. And this is where verse 23 comes into view. Look at it. Rejoice he in that day. In what day, Jesus? When men revile you. When they speak evil against you faultly. When they exclude you. Because they know that you're going to go the Jesus way. That you're going to go the way of God's kingdom. When they will even persecute you. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold your reward is great in heaven for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets not the prophets of verse 26 mind you but the prophets who preached the word of God in truth if you pattern your life after God's kingdom not just those who are persecuted in in those things but if you are the poor if you mourn and weep if you hunger in the way that Jesus speaks of he's got this command for you rejoice now but it comes with a promise because of your reward in heaven As we reflect on this first look at God's Kingdom Manifesto, there are two questions you need to answer. Number one is this Which category of person do you fall into? Are you a believer? Are you a believer who's not a committed follower? Are you a believer who is a committed follower of Jesus? And then the second question you need to answer is this Whose kingdom are you living for and building? Are you living for His? Are you building His? What is it that you hunger for? What do you depend on? Who do you delight in? What are you driven by? the answers to those questions will tell you whose kingdom you're living for and whose kingdom you're building